Well, take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 9, and as you're doing that, let me state the obvious to you. Your pastor is a sinful man. He's a weak man. He's a man who struggles. Um, I'm a fleshly man. So all of that mandates something else. That mandates that I be a dependent man. Did you know that? I'm flesh and blood and human. I sin. And so I can't rely on myself. Even though often I probably try to. (laughs) I run that route more often than I want to admit. And so the fact that I am a sinful, struggling, weak, fleshly, carnal man mandates that I actually be a dependent man. I'm dependent upon what Jesus did for me on the cross to forgive my sins. I can't forgive myself and earn any kind of righteousness. The fact that I'm powerless means I must depend upon the Holy Spirit given by God and dwelling me to see his power work in my life and in our church. Are you with me? All these things that we think, oh, I don't want to admit any of those things, all of those inadequacies, inadequacies actually are the very things that should propel us to being the very thing we need, which is a dependent type of person. This is the truth that the disciples were seeing in Mark chapter 9, that their dependency was actually not a bad thing, but a very good thing. We must be a dependent people. In Mark 9, this is what they're seeing, their incredible need to be dependent. Your Bibles are open there, right? Let me just tell you how we got there. We're kind of jumping back into our series on Mark. Christ is now focusing more on his disciples and training and teaching them as he's making his way to Jerusalem. Prior to chapter 9, he had spent some uh, several months, probably the first year and a half, two years, just kind of uh, circling the area where he grew up and then the outside area of that where there were Jews and Gentiles ministering to lots of crowds. In our division of Mark, we see those first eight or so chapters as Christ serving his neighbors, serving the crowds. He's gathered his disciples now, and he's affirmed with them that they do believe he's the Messiah, but they're still weak, and they're still not connecting all the dots. They're still struggling at times, and so he's now focusing on them and helping them get ready for what's to come, which is the cross. doesn't mean he's not still mingling with crowds and interacting with other people, Jew and Gentile, but it means his primary focus is teaching his disciples what they're going to have to know and do in order to carry on the mission when he's gone. And this kind of begins in about Mark 9. It begins, of course, with the transfiguration. They get a glimpse into the kingdom. And it continues in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And what we're going to see emerge in this next narrative as he's teaching his disciples about dependency and about their true need is we're going to see this simple truth emerge, that, that faith is not to be a situational lever but it's to be a relational lifeline. In fact, would you say that with me? That's our take on truth. Let's see if we can unpack these verses and and watch how this just kind of uh, emerges to us. I'll begin in in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. The Bible says that when they came to the disciples, the word they refers to Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, who were just on the Mount of Transfiguration. They'd been away for a bit. They're now rejoining the other disciples. 
So these folks saw a great crowd around them. And the scribes arguing with them, which is the normal protocol for the scribes and Pharisees, isn't it? They just loved a good debate. They loved a good argument. And so they all, um, they immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. This is verse 15. And they, uh, and so Christ asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so he asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. There's the predicament. What we're seeing here is the encounter going on. The actual narrative happening between Jesus, some of the disciples, and the crowd, and the scribes. Here's the predicament. We ask your disciples to free my son of this demonic spirit. They couldn't do it. This is, I think, what they were arguing about. And so Christ responds in verse 19. Oh, faithless generation. He applies a label to those arguing about this, doesn't he? In, in one way, indicating why they weren't able to cast it out. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And so they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, the spirit there is the demonic spirit. And the word, the pronoun him is Christ. When the demonic spirit saw Christ, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now I hope the emotional temperature here is kind of rising. I hope you're sensing what's happening in this text. This is a predicament, and it's getting pretty tense. It's, it's intense, isn't it? And so Jesus asked in verse 21, he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now, if you're a dad or a mom in this room, just start putting yourself in the shoes of this father. And you've watched for years your son being tormented. In fact, it escalates in verse 22. The father says it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. So knowing that, the next sentence makes a ton of sense. Look what it is, verse 22, end of it. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. <laughs> That's a natural response from a dad who's watched this happen for years to his son. If you can do anything, have compassion, help us. Verse 23, Jesus says to him, if you can. And, and I need you to kind of just catch the, the, the tenor of that phrase. He's repeating back what the father said. Like, if you can. Like, he's admitting to the father, I sense doubt in your voice. I sense hesitation. I sense urgency and desire, but I also sense you're just not all there. If you can, like, I'm Jesus. If I can. You're kind of catching this? And then he makes this statement. All things are possible for one who believes. Now, I want you to notice something. I'll come back to this in a minute. But what is Christ calling him to? Christ is not calling him to a result. He did not say all things are possible for one who is warning his son healed. He didn't say that, did he? 
for one who wants his son freed from the demon. He didn't say that. He says all things are possible for the one who what? Say it with me, church. Believes. He's calling him not to a specific result, but to a spiritual relationship. Tuck that away and hold on to it. So this man cries out in response, verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. You ought to draw a line under the phrase, I believe, help my unbelief, and connect it back to the word faithless in verse 19. Because in this moment, this father leaves the label that Jesus attached to those who are in that crowd. Remember he said, oh, faithless generation? But now what's this man, what is this man doing? He's expressing faith. He's saying, I believe in the middle of my doubts, in the middle of my questions, even with, with the kind of faith that doesn't seem to be very big or strong, I believe. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he then rebuked the unclean spirit and he said to it, this is verse 25, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now watch this next uh, scenario. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. Now if you're in that crowd and you don't know the end of the story, you're like, man, Jesus, like, you kind of challenge this father, like, if I can, enter a relationship with me and see what all I can do. And I think, Jesus, you've made things worse. You killed the man's son. I mean, that's kind of what they're thinking, right? He convulsed, he was shaking, and all of a sudden he's just laying there. So I need you to think about things, not from the point of the, the perspective that you know what's going to happen. Think about being in that crowd, the tension, the moment, and then it's like he, he's not getting up. Like, man, Way to go, Jesus. Like, wow. But I love the compassion of our Lord here. I love the way he, he is in control. He does do the impossible. He wasn't dead. He just simply took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. The implication being he was no longer tormented. He was at peace. The spirit never entered him again. In other words, Jesus did the impossible for this father. This is what I refer to as the encounter. Verses 14 through 27. And it's bring a lot of questions to our minds. I admit that. I can't answer all of them about this text. What I want to do is, is circle back to what I think are, is the swing set of verses in this portion. Maybe you call them the hinge verses. And that's verses 23 and 24. Everything builds to there and everything flows from there. When this man leaves the, the group of faithless people and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. He no longer is result-aimed, he's relationship-centered. You see, prior to that exclamation, listen very carefully, church, prior to that moment, I think that man was looking for a lever by which to heal his son. And I don't think that's necessarily evil-minded or wrong-intentioned. Who wouldn't want their son or daughter to be healed, correct? But he had tried the disciples, no luck there. The implication may be that he had tried other things, and so now Christ is here. Hey, let's give him a shot. In other words, he's just another option in the picture. He's a lever we can try, and Christ does not allow him to stay there. He calls him not to just a specific result-oriented moment. He calls him into a relationship. You follow that in the text? If I can, believe. Now notice this. 
Christ calls this man to belief before the man knew what Christ would do. Did the man believe Christ could do it? I think so. Did he know he would do it? I don't know. I think that's the real gist of his phrase. I believe, help my unbelief. Here's how I would translate that. I believe you can, but I don't know if you will. Like, I hear what you're saying. I believe you are who you say you are. Yes, but will you solve my immediate problem? I don't know. I, 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 you haven't said you would? I don't know. It's almost like I believe, but I, don't, but I have doubts. Does that make sense, guys? Man, can you appreciate that? I can. You ever wonder that when you pray? God, I know you can, but I don't know if you will. There's folks in this room struggling with some physical ailments, financial situations, stressed relationships, unknown futures. You believe God can, you have faith. And you have doubts, like, but will he? We can appreciate this, man. He's rowing the human existence boat, isn't he? Here's what I love about this statement. Whatever faith he does have, he puts it into Christ and just says, I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, what you will do is your call, but I believe you can. I believe it's possible. It may not be a reality. It may be. I don't know yet. But I, before I see what you do, I want you to know Christ. I believe you. You see, we'd admit he had small faith. He had, we might even call it, Weak faith. He had struggling faith, but let's just be clear. Here's a soothing balm for your soul. A little bit of faith in Jesus is better than a whole lot of faith in anything else. Here's living proof. I believe. I've got a lot of questions and a lot of doubts. I'm not sure what you're going to do, but I believe you can. So God, with a little bit of faith I have, I believe. You see, here's why we can say that. And we come back to this common theme in the last few parts of Mark. Faith is not, we'll call it strong, or it's not operative because of, of the strength of it in your life. In other words, it, it's not your strength that make, makes faith work. It's the object of your faith. Does that make sense? It's the fact that it's in Jesus. It's His strength that really makes faith what it is. We have faith in Christ, so even a little bit of faith in God, wow, that's powerful. Remember what Christ said? He said, if you have faith the size of a, say it with me, mustard seed. You know how big that is? You could put probably dozens in your hand. Way smaller than a corn seed, Edgar. <laughs> you know? And he's saying, if you've just got faith the size of a mustard seed, you can do what? Yeah, move a mountain. Like, wait, 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 wait. I think to move a mountain, you've got to have big faith. The point Christ is saying is this. When you have even a little faith in a big God, watch out. The impossible can happen. It doesn't mean it will he doesn't owe you, and we don't demand. We're simply saying, God, I believe you can. And with that, I'm satisfied. You see, faith that has to have its way isn't really faith. It's a demand. So we don't, on this side of all of our equations, say, hey, God, here's what you've got to do. I have faith that you'll do it, or otherwise I'm not in. That's not faith. That's a demand. God does not owe us, and he does not bend the knee to our demands. Faith is, 
Not fully knowing what will happen and yet trusting that God can if he wills. That yes, all things are possible. But watch this. Listen very carefully. Not everything is a reality. And there's a difference in the two statements. All things are possible is not the same as everything's a reality. And this is where the prosperity gospel false teachers get it wrong. You see, one is faith in God, period. One is faith in me demanding God. That's the prosperity gospel. I'll have enough faith. It's up to me. It's my strength. It's the effort of my faith. And so I will manipulate and leverage God to give me what I want. And I'll demand from him that he do certain things. I'll give this amount of money. I'll (laughs) perform this thing. And then God, you owe me. It's heresy. It's wicked. Biblical Christianity centers on faith that says, God, you can, and I trust you, regardless of the outcome. Now, this is an important note to make here, because this is one of the verses often that prosperity gospel preachers use to kind of leverage God. Hey, all things are possible, just believe, so if you believe, everything's possible. He's not saying that. Because all things are possible is different than everything's a reality. And the everything's a reality mindset are those who see faith as a situational lever. They're going to try to move God to their side. They're going to try to manipulate him to get what they want. But this man moved, remember, from the result-oriented to the relationship-centered lifestyle. Where he was trusting God even before he knew what, what Christ would do. And I want to remind you. Any faith that says, I have to have it my way, isn't faith at all. That's a demand. That's why I want to encourage you to watch the video called The American Gospel. We're not going to watch it here. It's a little over two hours. But it contrasts theologically, practically, and appropriately the true gospel of Jesus Christ in the Bible with the distorted gospel presented by many prosperity preachers whose end and whose source is themselves. Their faith, the strength of it, and the result being their way, that's contrasted with biblical gospel faith, which is in Jesus for his end results. It's about two hours. It's a very good opportunity for you to kind of root yourself in biblical theology and and what comes with that. In fact, I would encourage you, if you've got children uh, 10 or above, have them watch it with you. Uh, You'll thoroughly enjoy it. You can get it. uh, I think we watched it on Prime Video. It's about 3 or $4. It's not available free anywhere. You can buy the video, I suspect, from Amazon. But you can also just uh, watch it through Prime Video, three or four dollars. It's very good. And what this does, this helps us process the real sticking point of this narrative. The hinge verses, 23 and 24. And I just simply want to encourage you. Yes, God can do anything. And for that reason... We trust him 
But the fact that God can do anything doesn't always mean he will do everything. Are you tracking with me? And the minute you kind of lean over to like, well, God will do anything and everything I say if I have enough faith, you've crossed the line from faith into kind of a demanding lifestyle. You've left the relationship and you've moved to the results. And I don't think that's faith at all. Would you be like the father here who says, I'll believe before I know what Christ is going to do? Now that's faith. And I want to remind you, Trusting in God who can do everything enables us then to continue trusting him even when he doesn't do what we wish perhaps he would do. When his will and his ways are beyond our understanding. When his end purposes are greater than perhaps our immediate knowledge. The fact that he can do all things that, that fuels and founds our trust in him in the times when he's not doing what we wished he would do perhaps. You say, Todd, does God not do what we wished he would do? That happens sometimes. It's called suffering. And suffering is part of the Christian experience. I'm watching you right now. Your heads are nodding. Some here through different kinds of trials that may be physical, some are relational, circumstantial. And you're in situations that, well, they're, they're hard. And in part of you, you wish God would take those away Tomorrow. But you know, God is working something in you for now and according to Paul for later that we don't quite understand in the moment. It seems like a, a heavy weight now, but in glory it will seem like a momentary light affliction. Did you know that? That's part of gospel discipleship. And in your humanness, in your weakness, in your sinfulness, we would love for all of that to be gone. We would. But that's actually the very avenue God uses at times to sanctify us, to mature us, to perfect us, as James says, to increase our character and patience. So I don't understand totally how all that works. I'll just be frank with you. I mean, I have inadequacies here to describe how sometimes we wish things weren't that way, but we know they are that way, and we pray for God to remove them, but he doesn't. Other times he does. That's why I think we can, we can cry with his father. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And God hears that prayer. God knows that heart. So if you're wondering if your faith is strong enough or big enough or large enough or, or, or good enough, I, I just want to say this to you as your pastor. Just Relax. God's work's not dependent on the strength of your faith. It's dependent on the object of it. And a little bit of faith in Jesus is better than a whole lot of faith in anything else. So there's the encounter. Christ calling this man from result-aimed type of thinking where God's a lever to get what he wants to a relationship where he trusts him even before he knows what he'll do. Well, the disciples see this, and I think they're encouraged, but I think they're puzzled, like, man, what, what happened there? You can do all things that's possible, but maybe they're wondering, why don't you do more? I've got, I've got a list of things I could bring to you. Can we solve those? I don't know what they're thinking, but they're puzzled, but they're encouraged. And so they go in the house, verse 28 says, here's the explanation of what he was talking about. Verse 28 when he'd entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. And by the way, this was a kind of a common um, 
uh, event in the last few months. If you'll notice as Mark unfolds the last few chapters, they would, on a regular basis, ask Jesus, hey, what did you mean by that when they get along with him? Like, hey, what happened there? And what did you mean? So this is not an uncommon thing. They ask him, say, why could we not cast it out? In other words, we were arguing earlier about it with the scribes. We couldn't cast it out. And there was this argument about why. You came along. You cast it out. You said all things are possible. We're your disciples, so, so why couldn't we? And then he gives this answer. He explains what happened. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, that's a very intriguing phrase. Wouldn't you agree? Just kind of nod your head like this. You should agree. This is an intriguing phrase because it, it makes us wonder, is he saying, and follow me here, is he saying that prayer is kind of like this magic potion, like Okay, there's a certain kind of demon, there's a certain kind of demonic warfare that only goes out if you pray. Implying that there's other kinds of demonic warfare, other kinds of demons that maybe could come out without prayer. But this kind, you've got to say a certain prayer. Is he saying, is that what's going on here? I've heard that taught. I don't think that's what he's saying. And I'm not trying to minimize spiritual warfare. I'm not at all trying to minimize demonic activity. I'm just saying, I don't think Christ's point here is to say, oh, by the way, there's a certain kind of demon, the one that makes young boys mute and deaf, that they'll never leave unless you pray. Here's why I don't think that's what he's saying. Because Mark never records Christ praying in this incident. You tracking with me? If that's his point, you would think Mark would go to great lengths to say, okay, if it's only by prayer, here's the prayer Christ prayed. Because, man, I'd use that one, wouldn't you? But it's odd. He does not record even once, at least in this incident, Christ actually prayed. I think that's kind of odd. Now, in the King James, we have a two additional words. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. Now, all that is is just a manuscript difference. Some manuscripts have the two additional words. Some don't. Um, but I think it comes back to the same point. Is Jesus saying that prayer and fasting is a, an escalated type of spiritual weapon that only works with certain kinds of demonic activity? That's a good question. I don't hold to that view because even in the text, we don't find a record in this incident of Christ saying, hey, Father and Son, could you pause for a second? I've got to fast and pray. That's the only way this works. And I'm being a little facetious. I'm not trying to be irreverent. I'm trying to talk to you straight. He's not saying that prayer acts as some potion or like magic pill. It's not like this chant, oh, let me check the book. This needs prayer number 33. We'll go over here and we'll pray this prayer and it's, it done, it's done. That's not what's happening here. What Christ is saying is this. This kind of warfare, in other words, dealing with the enemy, battling Satan, you can't do it without being connected to Christ and dependent upon him in a relationship. It's not just a lever you use when you want to get your way. It's a relationship that's your life. And how, how do people who have a relationship with Christ, how do people of faith exhibit and display that? One of the key ways is through prayer. Do you know that? Prayer is the display. It's the verbal exhibition of faith. So I think what Christ is saying here, he said, guys, what you just experienced couldn't happen because you weren't dependent upon me. 
regular, intimate communion is not part of your life right now. Now, that's, I think that's odd. Here's why. A few chapters earlier, Christ had just sent these disciples out. you recall that? And they did these very things. They taught in his name. They performed miracles. They delivered people from demons. And now they're like, oh, uh, we're, we're not able to. What's going on? Here's what I think happened. And this is my take on the passage. Part of this is just my opinion. If you disagree, it's, it's no problem with fellowship, okay? I have other friends who see this differently. Man, love them. We can stay in great fellowship. But I think here's, here's what's going on in this text. Uh, they did experience some, we'll, we'll use the word success appropriately here earlier. They, they saw some success. They saw some ministry power. And I tend to think they got comfortable with that. Like, man, this is working pretty good. And they saw themselves over time as independent agents. Kind of like, you know, insurance salesmen. I can choose any of these packages, present it to the customers. Maybe he'll choose one and I can just kind of broker a deal. Maybe they saw themselves as like independent agents of the gospel. Okay, great, man. God sent us out. He's empowering us. I kind of like this thing. I'm a disciple. I've got some authority and some power. And slowly but steadily, they became more independent. They became humanly confident, less spiritually dependent. And the minute they became spiritually independent, they weren't able to really effectively serve for Christ. That's what I think went on. In fact, notice something here. In verse 14, the word, the pronoun they, do you see that? Those three that went to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus were joining other disciples who did not go there. One of our members of the 830 service asked me, do you think that perhaps those eight or nine that were still, um, we'll use the phrase, in the valley, do you think they were perhaps wondering, like, well, why didn't we get to go? What's special about Peter, James, and John? Nah, 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 you know, and, Maybe some resentment settled in. I'm just trying to talk to you as maybe a normal person would have seen this. Like, well, what's, what's happening here? And maybe there's a little bit of resentment, maybe a little bit of hesitation. Who knows in these intervening days what they thought? And maybe they begin to be self-reliant. Could all of that have been part of this fact that they, they, they were looked at as this faithless generation? You're not trusting me. You're thinking you can do it all. Here Christ says, guys, it's demonic Warfare, spiritual battling, you cannot do it in your own strength. It must be uh, approached, engaged when you're in communication, communion, when you're in a relationship that's your lifeline. And prayer is the believer's lifeline. I like what E.M. Bounds He's written several things on prayer. He's an old preacher slash theologian from generations ago. But he writes this about prayer and faith and the, the connection between the two. He says, prayer and faith are Siamese twins. One heart animates them both. Faith is always praying. Prayer is always believing. Faith must have a tongue by which it can speak. And prayer is the tongue of faith. I love the way he puts these together. He doesn't try to uh, dissect this text in a way that suddenly prayer is this potion or pill that just kind of works in moments. He's saying prayer is the, is the heartbeat. It's the lifeline of the person who's in relationship with Christ, who believes even before he knows what God will do. It's prayer that characterizes and, and, and is the heartbeat of that person. And that's the person then 
Who has the faith in God? The God who can do anything. You see, I wrote this down on my notes. Faith in God means prayer with God. Dependence upon God means prayer to God. How else do you express your dependence? And do you exhibit your faith if not through prayer? That God can if he wills. And so we throw ourselves at his feet. We lay our, ourselves down. We say, God, we trust you. I trust you, period. That's the prayer of faith. That's a I believe, help my unbelief. So the explanation, I think, is quite clear. And we must be a people of dependency, in touch, relying on God all the time. And this helps us understand what Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians when he would write three simple words, pray without ceasing. You see, we love to talk ourselves out of that verse, don't we? Like, well, I don't think Paul really meant that. The Greek word says this, and the verbiage is this, and the tense, and well, I think actually means what he said. He means pray without ceasing. He didn't say you got to close your eyes all the time, right? He didn't say you got to take a knee or a certain posture, but he did say that the believer is in constant communion with the Lord because they know that that relationship is their lifeline. It's not just a lever to get their way. It's not just a, a big pole to move God to their side of the fence. No, we say, Lord, I believe, period, before we even know what he will do, and we trust him with whatever he does. That's faith. That's dependence. That's reliance. And that's the kind of people we must be as we engage spiritual warfare, ministry, and serving others. A people of dependency. So that's why I just think this text really kind of helps us see this take-home truth again. And it calls us out a bit, doesn't it? Are we just a people who will sign on when God gives us our way? Are we an after-the-fact kind of people? Okay, God, do what I need you to do, and I'll be on board. Or are we like this father that says, Lord, I believe. I don't know what you're going to do. I have some doubts about that, but I know you can if you will. I'm in. You see, we must be a people that realize that faith, say it with me, is not a situational lever. It is a relational lifeline. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not just hard, not just difficult. It's impossible. So you can't please God unless faith is involved. And faith is, I believe Regardless. This is the kind of faith, this relational lifeline kind of faith. This is the kind of faith that Beckett Cook had. Oh, I would say it was around the 2009 mark. I don't know the exact date, so give me some room there to be wrong, okay? But somewhere around that time, Beckett Cook became a Christian, but his story is amazing. Beckett Cook is a, was a set designer in L.A. He was big in the Hollywood scene, um, knew all the famous stars, and his life was headed in a certain trajectory where he was going to be very successful, and he was going to have it all. 
even in that life, he said at certain parties and events, he would watch all the famous people, and he would in his heart wonder, is this really all there is? Is this the end? He would never voice that, and he said, I would maintain the public appearance, and I'm happy. He said, but inside I'm wondering, so is this the top of the line? Is this just as good as it gets? And he had a lot of searching questions, but he never voiced them, and so he continued in his homosexual relationship. He had a boyfriend. He continued in his pursuit of money. He just kind of lived the life that, that he felt like he wanted. And one day, he and his boyfriend were at a coffee shop uh, in L.A., and a, and a man with a big black book walks in. And you can read the story in his book called A Change of Affection. I'd pick it up if I were you on Amazon or somewhere. It's a great book. I just finished it last week. Super. It's, it's, it'll teach you theology as well as inspire you for God's power on display. But he's in a coffee shop. He writes that this man walks in with a big black book, and it's a commentary on Romans. And he's like, who in L.A. and this part of L.A. reads commentaries on Romans and brings them into a public place like a coffee shop? And this guy sat down with two or three other really young people, and he looked over, and he said they were actually looked normal. They were like hipster. He said, I thought they were maybe like me in our culture and part of L.A. He said, they're with a guy studying Romans. He said, they actually look normal. And in his mind, you couldn't be normal and be a Christian. You kind of had to be weird, and he said, you have to be the kind that hates uh, gays, and you got to be against anything in Hollywood. And he said, here I am watching these two or three hipster, normal-looking people talking to this guy with a big black book, and I'm, I just can't take my eyes off of them. And he says, and when it's all said and done, one of them invites me to church. I guess maybe they had seen that there was like some, you know, somebody's looking at you, watching. you kind of been there, right? And so one of the persons kind of walks over and says, hey, excuse me, I noticed you were one, you know, watching and just want to invite you to church. And so Beckett says in his book, um, I was surely not going to go to church. They don't like people like me is what he's thinking. But he says, out of my, out of my mouth came the word yes. <laughs> and he says, I couldn't believe I was saying yes. So I took the guy's number, he took mine, and, and he said they were polite and kind. And So over the next two or three days I kept thinking, well, I'll get out of this. No big deal. I'm not going to church. I mean, we don't go to church. He says, Sunday morning comes. I get out of bed. I'm driving to church. He can't figure it out. You got to read the book. It's a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty and conviction and just drawing Beckett to the cross. He gets to church, and he's uncomfortable. And you just need to read it. I'm a little bit of a spoiler here, okay? But he says, but he heard the gospel. And he had some religious background, but not a lot. He said, but for the first time, he said, I saw a picture of what I was really after, a relationship with someone who loved me. A relationship with someone who, no matter what he did for me, he was going to meet my deepest need, and that was the forgiveness of my sins. He said, man, I had a, a pile of sins. He said, but in the middle of that moment, hearing the gospel, and, and I could sense God drawing me to the cross, I had a thousand questions. Like, but I'm gay. Or like, but I live in Hollywood. And he said, I had so many things like, I don't understand this. Does this mean I got to follow the Bible? Does this mean I got to go to church? He said, I had a, a ton of questions I didn't have answers to. He said, but I had one thing I knew. I want to believe in this truth. So I could sense God drawing me. He said, and that day, my first time at church on a simple invitation at a coffee shop from folks I thought looked pretty normal but couldn't be Christian, he said, I prayed and gave my heart to God. I said, God, I believe, help all the things I don't understand. 
It was a modern-day equivalency of this father here. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. What the book lays out is, is the transformation over 10 to 12 years of Beckett Cook's life by the power of God. A God who did the impossible. Now, I'm not going to tell you more about the book. You've got to read it. It's excellent. Here's what I'm saying to you. Beckett Cook, and from, every, from, from, from every part of his story, it's clear he was a dependent man upon God's power. From the moment he even stepped into the church, from hearing the gospel, how to respond, getting baptized, to then relationships, telling his friends, his job, every step was one of dependency. It was small faith in one way, but it was faith in the right person. Amen? Because he found what, what we've seen. Even a little bit of faith in Jesus is better than a whole lot of faith in anything else. And he wasn't trying to move God to his side. He wasn't trying to leverage God to his point of view. He said, God, if you are promising me forgiveness, I'm in, period. No matter what comes next. And that day, his first time in church, from a simple invitation from a guy in a coffee shop, Beckett experienced the transforming power of a God with whom everything is possible. See, that's dependence. I want to call you to that same kind of dependence today. Not the kind of life that says, God, if you'll do what I say, I'll jump in. Don't see God and try to leverage him. Instead, just trust him. Even with all your questions, bring the, even the small bit of faith you have to him and place every bit of it in Jesus. That's your relational lifeline. You can't live without it. So if you just got a little bit of faith this morning, if you're like, Todd, I've got a pile of sin too. I've got a whole bunch of hurts. I've got things that I can't figure out and things I wish would happen. But if God can do all things, even before he does whatever he does, I will trust him. That's faith. That's dependency. And dependency is a necessity in the Christian life. It's that necessity I call our church to. We'll have a chance next Sunday night to display this. It's one of our prayer gatherings. You know, we don't gather at those gatherings on Sunday night to pray because we're, you know, chanting some spiritual formulaic potion. Are you with me? We're gathering to pray in small groups, independently, all different ways, to express our dependence upon God. We lay out our, we lay out our burdens, our, our difficulties, our situations, things within our church, our lives that we don't know what to do. We're not geniuses. We're not experts at this thing. We're sheep with shepherds. And we're saying, God, we need you. I hope you'll join us next Sunday night in this room just for an hour, just to lay your heart out before God. Because you know what? That posture of dependency is exactly what you need to exhibit. Because you, like me, are a sinful person. You're a weak person. You're a struggling person. You're fleshly and you're carnal, just like your pastor. So every bit of that mandates that you, along with me, become a dependent person. And we hold the lifeline of our relationship to Christ. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. 
For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.